This is a loaded morning for me, as uh, many of you know. This is my last opportunity to preach uh, to this congregation, and so I come just with a mixed bucket of emotions. I really am. I've had so many of you say, I remember what you looked like when you came. (laughs) And the funny thing is, I don't feel like I look that different. I actually have a picture of my first day on the job. I have it right there. Look at that. Just (laughs) 10 years ago. Yep. Me and Casey showing up to work together. All right, you please put it down. Take it away. And delete it. Thank you. Uh, I am am leaving uh, WHBC with so many incredible treasures that I know I will have for the rest of my life. And uh, I know I will take them with me. I will take these lessons, these memories with me. I will take all the memories and lessons I learned with the student ministry, the mission trips, the retreats, the children's sermons. I will take with me the fact that I had to fire one of my interns so I could marry her. (laughs) It got real. It got real for a little bit. Had more hair transformations than an Oprah Winfrey season. I had a lot of uh, changes. One of the things that I know I'm taking with me, though, is uh, some huge lessons of life and ministry and church and pastorate that I will always be a part of me. One of the main lessons I learned is what I would like to share with you today. It's probably the biggest lesson that I've learned while here at this church with you. And it is, what is the most important characteristic for a Christian? What is the most important characteristic for someone who knows and follows Jesus? I used to think it might be holiness or righteousness or courage or piety or something else like that. And what I've learned while being with you is there's nothing more important to the Christian life than gratitude. Simply grateful, being grateful, a grateful follower of Jesus. The reason why this is so important and what I would use to not think this is that I would think that all those things are so much more important in the Christian life, but the response for me has always been that everything in the Christian life, everything that we do and we are, is in response to the grace that goes before. So, of course, we should be marked by gratitude. Of course, we should be marked by gratitude because that fuels everything we then do. So we go into this world with compassion because of what has already been done for us. Of course, we seek to be pure and holy and righteous, but we do it out of gratitude and not out of duty. And for me, that has been one of the most profound lessons I've learned. I used to have it in such the wrong order that I would think that I would earn God's graces by my duty and my action, and I realize now I do those things in response to what God has already done. We have a beautiful depiction of this in Luke's account in chapter 7. It shares a story of a dinner party gone awry. It shares a story of when Jesus went to a town to be met by a Pharisee named Simon. Uh, Unlike our culture, it's very normal for Simon, the Pharisee, to provide a meal for the community. And the invited special guests would have their places around the table, and others in the community could linger, they could come in, and kind of like an open house, kind of observe the encounter and the meal. 
And so on this day, you can imagine Simon getting ready, making sure that the food was cooked. I'm sure he went to Whole Foods that morning to pick out flowers. In the shower, he's thinking through the conversation points in case the dialogue dies down. And then somewhere along the way, something happened that Simon didn't expect and no one else expected. That word of Jesus' arrival went through the part of the community that no one would think would be welcomed in a Pharisee's home. Including a woman who was deemed a sinner. Who knows why the woman was called a sinner, but a person marked with such a title, a woman marked with such a title on that day would leave us to expect one thing. Yet, she had heard of Jesus. Word even came around to her little circle. And this one that some people were calling the Messiah was being someone that people weren't expecting. He would sidestep the religious, sidestep the pious, and go straight for the people who seemed to be the most desperate, the people who needed a Savior. And he would go to straight to those people, including people like her. You have to wonder for this woman, just a glimmer of hope began to break in her heart and in her mind. Might this Messiah even accept her? If Jesus ever came to her town, he made up her mind. So as the word of Jesus coming to the community was swirling around the community, it landed in the unexpected, unexpected place of this woman's heart and took root, much like a little flower growing in the crack of a sidewalk. And so he showed up. This for her could be a time of a new beginning. Unfortunately, it was at a Pharisee's house. So this would take courage. So the dinner party was going well. People were taking turns talking and asking questions of Jesus, balancing the conversation okay. People weren't drinking too much, but they were showing that they could have a good time. And then this woman creeps into the room. And eyes begin to dart around and lock in on Simon, the host, He became nervous, maybe even indignant. Maybe she will do what she always does. Maybe she will just hide out in the shadows. Maybe she won't make herself known, especially to Jesus. I like to imagine this woman sitting there in the corner and listening to Jesus, wanting to be validated that, in fact, that he was the Messiah that she had hoped he would be. And then she had heard enough. Beginning to weep, She took a deep breath of courage and she moved out of the corner and fell at his feet, bathing his feet with her tears and her hair. What is interesting to me is that this is all before Jesus said or did anything specifically for her. It was this moment of gratitude and worship. Honestly, it it seemed a little bit out of order. But she knew that salvation had come. Now the Pharisee turned his anger from this woman now to Jesus. If Jesus really was the prophet, he would know who she was and do the holy stiff arm to her, making sure that she didn't get too close. And with a thought of judgment in his mind, he concluded that Jesus was no prophet. So in this tense moment around the dinner table, we've had many of those where something goes weird, something goes wrong. Jesus took people on a bit of a field trip and told a story. Two people, two debts, one great, one little. Both were forgiven. One loved great, one loved little. 
You and I might read this as a story where Jesus was juxtaposing this woman with a great debt to this man, Simon, with a little debt. And if we were to read it like that, we would fall prey to totally misunderstanding this story. In God's kingdom, there aren't those with great debts and those with little debts. There's one type of person, the type of person who is in deep need of grace. Not those with a little need of grace or great need of grace. There are us who are in need of a Savior. And there's some of us who are tragically unaware of that need. We take it and we sweep it under the rug. We tout our successes. We point at people, much like Simon did, and say, surely, surely people like that might need a Savior. Within you and I, there's probably the one mindset of a small debt, and there's the other mindset of the great debt. You probably walked in here today with either one of those mindsets. And in God's kingdom, we have to continue to put forth the fact that we are still in need of God's grace day in and day out. This is the main thing I think that undercuts our sense of gratitude. I've thought about this. What, what is the main opponent to gratitude? Is it a sense of pride, feeling like you've made much of your life? Is it the sense of consumerism that kind of numbs our sense of gratitude? Is it the fact that many of us are, feel really entitled to goodness, comfort, and security? And for me, I think all of those things are the outside of the nesting doll and the thing that's the actual core problem for us with our sense of gratitude is forgetfulness. We have this incredible capability of forgetting. Forgetting what God has done, where God has brought us from, the legacy of God's faithfulness and goodness that God has weaved in our life story. Os Guinness, he's an author and theologian, he reminds us in these words. Ingratitude and forgetfulness are ultimately moral rather than mental problems. They are the direct expression of sin. And no culture has nourished such tendencies as, consistent, as consistently as ours. We pride ourselves in being autonomous, self-created, and freestanding. A modern world with no need of God produces modern people with no sense of gratitude. So when you and I take an honest look in the mirror, what do we see? Autonomy, bootstrap success, or do we see someone whose life has been marked by God's grace that went before it all? I'm afraid that we forget, and in our forgetting, we make the gospel more tolerable, more manageable, much more tame. If you're to take Jesus' parable seriously, how do you know if you're the tragic character with a small debt that thus loves small? Or the beloved character with a great debt that loves in a great manner. I will look at one place. I will look at your gratitude. If you and I are the tragic character or the beloved one. This summer, my plans were interrupted by an unexpected visitor. Jen and I, we ditched our uh, daughter with my parents and picked up another couple, and we decided to go to Colorado for a week. So we jumped in my father-in-law's truck, because we had so much, even without kids, and we started driving to Colorado, almost between the New Mexico 
line uh, in between New Mexico and Colorado, we pulled over for some gas. And as I was filling up the car, I began to notice a very weird person kind of lingering. And uh, I could tell that he was living off of his bicycle. He was making his way and he was living off the bicycle. Of course, I'm trying not to make eye contact and he comes up to me and asks if, uh, if he could throw his, truck in the back, his bike in the back of the truck and give him a ride for a while, to which I said no. I said it in a much Christian-y version of no, but it was no. <laughs> and uh, we, get in the, we get in the car, we're, we're driving, we're talking about it, and you know, eventually the four of us decide, let's turn around and give him a ride. So we get Jeff and throw his bike in the back of the truck and begin driving along the highway. And, and Jeff is, by all standards, very, very weird. He does not blink as often as you hope a person blinks, <laughs> which for me is a metric of, of someone being really weird. Makes me want to blow at their face and see if they will blink and to see if they're human. <laughs> Jeff also, um, this was his sixth time to try to drive his bicycle, ride his bicycle from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Sixth time to which I asked, what happens? And he looked at me and says, the Rockies. Okay. Duh, I guess. Um, and, uh, and then I said, what do you plan on doing when you get to California? He says, I'm planning on playing my glockenspiel in a jazz band. Yep. This is every parent's nightmare as their child will one day say those words, right? Um, and to top it off, he has uh, on the bill of his, uh, his cap, he has aluminum foil sticking way far out. And I thought, of course, it's to, you know, reflect the sun's heat. And he says, no, it's to actually keep the government from reading my thoughts. And I'm driving, I'm going, you feel comfortable back there, Jen? You feel comfortable? Uh, and so conversation, I love, I love weird people because they're, it's never boring, right? So we're driving along and we're, conversation's going all over the place and eventually kind of wanders towards spirituality and then towards Christianity, to which I asked, uh, you know, we were just having this conversation. He says, you know, for me, I, I've read about Jesus. I want to believe. I just can't make the leap. I can't just fully make the leap. So for me, I, uh, in almost a pandering way, I wanted to kind of create some common ground. And so I said, well, even if you don't believe, the story of Jesus actually might be helpful for you to make sense of the world. I thought it was a bit of a softball. It's kind of me. But he immediately goes, no, thank you. I go, excuse me? He says, no, if, if this is really just a story, I'm not interested Either Jesus was the Son of God and all this truly happened, or he's not. But I'm not really interested in a story. <sighs> For me, I, that, I would look back at that encounter, and um, it's a really tragic tendency that I have, that you might have, to sometimes whittle down the gospel to be something a little bit more manageable, a little bit more palatable, easier to share and easier to understand. In my impulse to make this the reality of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection a story, sometimes at worst it becomes analogy. This, begets, this becomes way too dangerous. Because if Jeff would have agreed in the analogy of Jesus as a mere story, 
a vague God will sort of know our name. And Jesus would kind of come to this world, maybe not as the son of God, but maybe a distant cousin, to live a near blameless life, to die a kind of a sacrifice for whatever reason, for the analogy of new life that would somewhat be helpful for us. Friends, this would lead to a life of morality with a tinge of joy and a pinch of gratitude. And by the way, that probably is the way that Simon saw the world. But if on the other fact, if we actually have to make a leap, a gracious leap, and if God actually became flesh and lived a real life of grace and truth with actual people who had real needs and had real addresses and had true blindness and were really paralyzed and they deeply needed a savior, and if they actually took Jesus and actually put him on a cross with real splinters and he was lifted up in a real place called Golgotha and actually said to a crowd of people spurning him on, if he actually said to him, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he breathed his last breath and they took his corpse, again, the son of God, and put him in a dank, dark tomb and they thought it was over with. But then three days later, death couldn't hold Jesus back and he actually came forth and not theoretically, but actually became a real life of Christ could not be held back so that you and I would know that our lives can be truly transformed that you could believe that God truly is alive today and knows you, all of you, the real you, the you that no one else knows, so that you could experience once and for all the fact that this Emmanuel God knows you, cares for you, claims you here today and for all time. Wouldn't that lead us to gratitude? Wouldn't that lead us to joy? When I read this passage, forgiveness and salvation isn't just a story or a concept to this woman. It's something that she was desperate for and she needed it. So of course, this bold act of giving was because of Christ's true act of forgiving. She had a debt that only grace could pay off. Jesus concludes this parable by forcing all to now finally look at this woman, the woman that was in the shadows, the woman now under the table. Jesus actually lifts her up and says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with this ointment, this fragrant ointment. Before I tell, therefore I tell you, her sins, which yes, are many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven, loves little. Notice Jesus is not saying to Simon, you should have allowed this. You should not have judged this. He's actually saying to Simon and to everyone else there, you should have done this. You too should have loved great because my grace can meet your great need. This unnamed woman, she got it. And she, she felt compelled to worship out of gratitude. And she responded to Jesus with courage and love. I love that about this woman. You know my favorite part of the story though? Is the perfume. The ointment. The fragrant ointment. Think about what this perfume meant to this woman. 
day in and day out what this fragrance was used for and how at the feet of Jesus things have new meanings and given new God-given values and are redeemed and transformed. For her, that which she used to seduce was now used to praise and to worship. That which she used to cloak herself was now used in revealing herself and finding herself. That which was used to shame was used to adore. That which was used for people to, to take advantage of her and abuse her is now her redemption. That which was used to further her brokenness was actually her healing. This now was the aroma of worship and gratitude. This was the aroma of love. And by the way, this was the anointing Jesus wanted. Not the anointing from those with little debts, not the anointing from the religious elite, the anointing from those people who have a deep, dark need. This was going to be their king, and he could be your king too. Do you have any reason to go to God in gratitude today? When you think through your life and you see the mental reel of where God has taken you what God has done in your life, do you have any reason to fall at his feet and simply say, thank you, thank you? For me, the greatest picture of love and grace of Christ today, for me, is you. When I think back to what God has used you in my life in dramatic ways, I am compelled to say, thank you, God. I'm compelled to, towards gratitude for who you are. And if this could, this fragrance would fill this room. I am grateful for a choir that leads us in worship. It is so beautiful. I'm grateful for that. Jim Blanchard, I'm grateful for your joy, your love, your hospitality. You, my friend, are a gift. Emily, you... I'm going to give you two. You, <laughs> you are a steady force of love and care. It's not only in the way you lead worship, but it's also how you walk alongside people with compassion. I am grateful for you. <laughs> Paul, you take this monstrous machine and turn it into worship. And you have such depth that challenges me, and I am grateful for that. I am grateful for such a beautiful congregation that has taught me how to love, taught me what church means. I'm grateful for the people that are behind the scenes that no one thinks of. I'm grateful for the way you make this room sound awesome. Even when it's a, such a challenging thing to make this room sound so good, you do it. I am beyond grateful. And you know the cool thing about this? I'm going to give you an extra one. Welcome. I don't know if I've met you. Welcome to this church. We do this every week. Ray. Ray calls me every single day on my birthday to say happy birthday. It's a small thing, but what that means is people matter to Ray. I'm grateful for that. Buzzards, I'm grateful for you for many things, but one thing that you might not know is they care for our mission partners personally, relationally. They walk alongside of them. People that feel so isolated. I am grateful for that. For you guys, oh my gosh, the Irvins. The way that you orchestrate communion and the sacraments, you provide the opportunity for people to experience the real love and life of Jesus Christ, and you do it with such grace and steadfastness. I am grateful for that. You guys are an amazing congregation.
You are amazing. And one of the things that I've noticed, just a little bonus one right there. <laughs> you know the thing that's such an incredible thing, you want a little bit, you got it. One thing that I know about the way this thing works is as you all live your life with a sense of gratitude and worship, you are becoming the fragrance of Christ. That's one of my favorite things about this story is how that ointment, how that perfume probably changed the whole room. And it filled up the whole room like it is right now. This one act of gratitude, this one act of worship, just like it is right now. And just like those people, they left that dinner party with that fragrance on them, especially that woman who was bathing Jesus' feet with her hair. She took with her the fragrance of Christ. That smell that was had an old meaning was given a new one, and it was the fact that she was claimed and loved, and she carried that fragrance of Christ. My challenge for you, church, never forget how wildly loved you are in Jesus. Never forget that. And go into this world with joy and gratitude because there is a Savior who is going to walk alongside of you all of your life. I am grateful for that, and I'm grateful for you. Amen. Thank you. Let's continue in worship. Thank you.